there's, uh, there's some warnings in here about avoiding um, other religions and other, uh, other forms of spirituality. So I, I thought I would read to you um, some sayings of the Jewish Buddha just to illustrate to you what happens when you try and mix stuff like Judaism and, uh, and Zen Buddhism. And these are, these are uh, I'm interested to know who came up with these because they're pretty good. If there's no self, whose arthritis is this? Be here now. Be someplace else later. Is that so complicated? <laughs> Drink tea and nourish life. With the first sip, joy. With the second sip, satisfaction. With the third sip, peace. With the fourth, a Danish. <laughs> Wherever you go, there you are. Your luggage is another story. Accept misfortune as a blessing. Do not wish for perfect health or a life without problems. What would you talk about? <laughs> the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single oi. There is no escaping karma. In a previous life, you never called, you never wrote, you never visited. And whose fault was that? <laughs> Zen is not easy. It takes effort to attain nothingness. And then what do you have? And then they have some Yiddish for Bubkis, like for nothing. <laughs> the Tao does not speak. The Tao does not blame. The Tao does not take sides. The Tao has no expectations. The Tao demands nothing of others. The Tao is not Jewish. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Forget this, and attaining enlightenment will be the least of your problems. Let your mind be as a floating cloud. Let your stillness be as a wooded glen. And sit up straight. You'll never meet the Buddha with such rounded shoulders. Be aware of your body. Be aware of your perceptions. Keep in mind that not every physical sensation is a symptom of a terminal illness. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. So, maybe we're off the hook. So, that's what happens when you try and mix stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's look at the Parsha together first. Um, book of Exodus. The book of Shemot. Chapter, let's look at 30 first. It's an interesting start, actually. Kiti Saw is the name of this parish that has to do with when you take a census. And uh, basically, the Holy One is, tells Moses, so um, whenever you take a census of the people of Israel, make sure that you, you tax them at the same time with half a shekel per head, and don't tax the rich more, and don't tax the poor less. And uh, actually, he uses some more spiritual terms. He uses the term um, like a, a kapara, which is like an atonement or a covering, uh, here it's translated as a ransom, which is interesting. So, you know, th those, uh, those Baptists, they're going to be in a lot of hot water for this one, you know, when you, when you have the uh, elder in the back who counts every single person in the building, and, but he doesn't charge them the tax. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. But it is, it is interesting, like in 3016, it's a, it calls it the atonement money, the kesef hakipurim. Like... Kind of the 
an interesting concept. I don't, I, I don't know that I entirely understand that. Um, we do have an incident, incident, though, with David when he numbered the people. You remember he took a census, and he didn't charge the half-shekel tax. And uh, the results were disastrous on a national level. They had, they had an epidemic across the whole country, and a lot of people died. So anyway, um, that's an example of a national leader not following the Torah and seeing a, a disaster on a national level also. Here's an interesting connection with the, uh, with the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures. In Acts chapter 10, verse 4, Cornelius, who is a Hasid, he's like a very devout man, and he's also like a, a tough soldier. I find him rather fascinating. He's praying, and this messenger from Yahweh appears to him, and he says that two things have ascended as a memorial on your behalf. Number one is his prayers, and number two is his tzedakot, his, uh, his alms. So it's interesting that the money he gave to good causes ascended just like prayers before Elohim on his behalf. Um, interestingly enough, the, the Hebrew term for, uh, for like a memorial is a zikaron. It's, a, it's like a constant memorial, something that's constantly being remembered. And uh, this is the same term used uh, in, this, in this passage in the Torah. Where is it? I think it's in verse 16. Yeah. It says like, uh, so take the kesef hakipurim, the atonement money from the sons of Israel, and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial. There's that word, a zikaron, for the sons of Israel before Yahweh to make atonement for yourselves. So what, what do you make of that passage? Are there any insights that we could glean from this um, that actually like are applicable to our lives? What does it say here, verse 16? Where did the money go? The service of the tent of meeting. So the avodah of the Ohel Moed. That's a very cool picture too of Yeshua and how he gave his life as a ransom for ours. Oh, the, the, the Temple Institute, uh, which as you are aware, they're planning to rebuild the temple. They have the menorah and a lot of the furniture investments already. They're training at least 500 priests, etc. They've reinstated the half shekel and uh, you, can, you can actually like, get an annual holy half shekel and order it. It's only like 25 or $30, and it's very nicely done. Um, you may want to check that out on the internet. Just, just do a search on holy half shekel. Um, check it out. Yeah. Here's, I'm going to give you quite a, quite a few Hebrew insights from this parasha, because these are the things that really spoke to me. In um, Exodus chapter 30, verse 23, uh, let's look at that together. He's talking about the, uh, the incense and the ingredients for the incense. And uh, the first one it says is flowing myrrh. Flowing myrrh. The Hebrew word for myrrh is more. Everybody say more. It's one of those words that we have in English originally from Hebrew, from, uh, from the Semitic family of languages. So... That's the word for myrrh, more. Uh, as you know, um, it's also the word for something that is bitter. For instance, Naomi renamed herself Mara because she, was bit, she had some bitter experiences in life. Uh, the bitter waters, you remember, were also called Mara. So uh, the, the concept of myrrh has to do with uh, something bitter, a bitter experience in life, um, something that leaves a bitter taste in your soul. Um, the master, wasn't he anointed with myrrh before his crucifixion? And that fragrance was just wafting from him as he was, as he was flogged brutally and as he, 
he carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. So there's this, there's this connotation, there's this connection between myrrh and the bitter experiences of life. Maybe you could see experiencing the cross. When the Father so arranges something in your life that he just, the cross hits your heart, it hits that soul life and it humbles you and it breaks you. Uh, that's the myrrh. As, as I understand it, on, a, on an experiential level. And uh, the, the word here for flowing is notable. It's the Hebrew word dror. I would transliterate that D-R-O-R. Everybody say dror. And, and actually, do you, know, um, do you know what a dror is in Hebrew? A dror is a swallow, like the bird. How many of you have ever watched swallows flying? This, this, is, this is a beautiful word connection, and it's so meaningful. Like, uh, you know, we have, we have swallows, of course, uh, at our farm. And I remember as a little boy watching them, like, you know, sparrows are pretty clunky, right? Like, they just kind of move from point A to point B, kind of cute little birds, you know? But swallows are, like, I don't know, like, really hot, rotted up, like, fancy cars. Like, they just, they go, you know? Maybe it would be the difference between a little two-seater Cessna and, like, a, an F-16 or something. But, like, uh, swallows are fantastic to watch. They soar and they dart. And, uh, wow. And, and, that's, and that's, the, that's the same word in Hebrew for liberty or freedom. Like, you remember where it says that on the Shnat HaYovel, on the Jubilee year, you proclaim freedom throughout the land. It says proclaim dror throughout the land. So, the swallow, every time you see a swallow, watch for them. Become a bird watcher in a biblical sense because that's a picture of the freedom that you have in Messiah in Mashiach's redemption. And here we have this connection between myrrh that represents a bitter experience or, or the cross as it's applied to our self-life and freedom. Do, do you see like maybe there could be a connection there on a, on a personal level? I don't know, have, have any of you experienced a time in your life where he was humbling you? And he, was, he, was, he, he, he so brought people in your, into your life that you couldn't escape from, and he so arranged situations that it just it hit that, that pride deep inside of you. And you were just like, you know what, I can't take this, I can't handle this, I just have to let go. And that's the point where you just fall into his grace, and he begins to carry you. And, and uh, you kind of move from living from yourself to living from his spirit in you. And uh, you, you know that experience. I'm sure we've all had that at times. Well, that, that's the idea here. You know, those bitter experiences and the cross is applied to our lives, resulting in a new level of freedom and just the life of Messiah flowing from us. And, and, and this, is, this, is, uh, this is one of these, these fragrances in the holy place, hey? So, um, you know, I mean, they're cool smells, but what's the deeper meaning, hey? How does it apply to our lives? This is one thing that I would glean from this passage. So be encouraged. The Father is going to arrange situations to humble you, to break you, it will be bitter at times. Don't wig out at him. Don't get mad. Don't walk away from him. Don't even necessarily walk away from the person whom he's using to humble you. To humble you. There is a time to walk away, right? But it might be that that's his way of bringing you into real freedom, setting you free. And maybe there's for- forgiveness might be a part of that. You know, when you forgive someone, when you release them, you're setting yourself free. You're not setting them free. You're setting yourself free. Yeah. I think... When we were worshiping, I felt like that was something he was saying. And I don't know why, but I felt like that was something he was saying this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Look, have you, have you ever prayed and invited him to humble you? 
I remember praying when I was like 17 or so. I was like really going for God and I was so passionate. I remember just praying, God, I, I just want all of your grace and I pray that you just humble me, God, right? And man, it was like I got hit by a Mack truck after that, like a divine Mack truck. And I knew it was him, like just, it was like he took his, sh- his spotlight and just shone it on my heart. And I was like, I am the... I am like the filthiest person on the earth. Like, you know, Isaiah, like, woe is me. You know, I live in the midst of a really dirty-mouthed people and all this stuff. Like, man, I experienced that. But I remember, like, I, I, I don't know if he ever answered a prayer so fast or so decisively as when I asked him to humble me. So I don't know. You might, I dare you. I dare you to pray and ask him to humble you. Oh, yeah. Did you ask him to do that once? No, you should. <laughs> well, you. I don't, are you sure you shouldn't have asked him to do that? I mean, grace goes to the humble, right? Your life was a lot easier before. You asked him to humble you, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here, here's here's another thought along those lines. If you want to look at Exodus chapter thirty-two verses 16 and 17. It uses multiple terms to describe the inauguration of this covenant. And uh, there, there are several Hebrew words here that like, are translated... Uh, well, you know how it is with language, right? When you have a word in one language and you translate it to another, you always lose at least part of the original meaning or part of, part of the, uh, the, the, uh, the possible nuance of the word. And that's so true, especially when you're translating from a Semitic language like Hebrew, which relies a lot on context, and uh, you're translating into a, a word that comes more from the Greco-Roman family of languages like English. Like English is very spe- specific. You know, you look at your thesaurus. Uh, you have like 20 different ways of saying a word, and each one has its own nuance, right? Hebrew, Hebrew isn't like that. And uh, Hebrew is also composed of three-letter roots. So you have a three-letter root, and then you have another three-letter root that is very closely related to it, and they're like in the same family of words. You call that a cognate, right? Don't go to sleep on me. Don't go to sleep on me, please. I know, I'm like, I'm really boring right now, but I'm going somewhere with this. So, um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't, know if, I don't think any of you were. But um, in here, so I want to give you a couple of these words that have like, have different nuances or whatever, right? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 16, it says that the tablets, this is like, I think, a picture of the new covenant also. It says that they were God's work. The Hebrew says ma'aseh, Elohim. So ma'aseh, like the root word of that is asa, which is action. You know how we sang today, like, yamin, 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 Yahweh, osa, ha'il. And that word osa means like does valiantly, right? So it's the same word here. So the first thing that we get from this concept is like when Yahweh initiates a covenant, the tablets that he wrote it on, that was his work. That was his action. What does that tell us about the New Covenant? Could it be that it's not about our works, it's about His work that justifies us, that sanctifies us, that is, that is making us new people? It, it is the work of Elohim in our lives. It's His action, right? We accept it. We go along with it. We, we, uh, you know, there's, there's, a faith, there's a faith part for us. So that's the first thing that we get from that, this concept of the tablets. It's His job to write the Torah internally. Within, within each one of us and make us like living, breathing, walking Taurus girls. You know, 
Yeah, just like the word made flesh, like our master, you know. That's what he's making us. Uh, the next word is the word for, uh, for written. And that word is harut. Everybody say harut. Now the interesting thing is, that's also the word for freedom. Dror is translated as liberty in the sense of a swallow flying free. But harut is also a word for freedom. So that word can either mean something that's written or freedom. And there's a, there's a conceptual connection there. Like when he writes his Torah on your heart, there is freedom in that. That is setting us free. Yeah. You know, when we, when we, when we pour over the holy texts, in, um, in the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, in, in that close relationship with Yeshua where he's teaching us personally, there is freedom there. That is the pathway to freedom. So that's kind of the, uh, the connotation here in the Hebrew. Uh, we also have this term... Um, what was the specific uh, like technique or agency through which these things were written? It says that they were written with the finger of Elohim, the etzba Elohim. And uh, do you remember when Moshe first started doing phenomenal things in Egypt? There was some supernatural pheno phenomena going on. And uh, there was one that the magicians couldn't replicate. Like, they realized, we're out of our leagues with this. Moshe is like... A, a significant cut above us in terms of like power and, and, and they told Pharaoh, Pharaoh like this is the finger of Elohim this is the etzba of Elohim right and, and that's, an, that's an idiom in Hebrew for like the supernatural right something, that trans, something that's from the fifth dimension something that transcends like the natural laws of space and time as we know them so that's something to note there so when it says the tablets were written with the finger of Elohim Maybe it means like, you know, he wrote them with his finger. But in Hebrew, to the Hebrew mind, that means they were written supernaturally, through supernatural means. Uh, Yeshua, he said that he, casted, he cast demons out by the finger of Elohim. That was a sign that the kingdom of Elohim had come upon the people of Israel. So he cast out demons by supernatural means. So uh, again, it's this element of the spirit, of the supernatural power um, in this covenant. And isn't that, isn't that also like very true of the New Covenant? Like in the New Covenant, this thing is like notched up to the nth degree, right? It, 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 goes, it goes huge. Um, we also have uh, the term... I, I, the, the, the term for a tablet is fascinating. It's a luach. Everybody say luach. The, the plural is luchot. Everybody say luchot. Yeah, now here's the interesting thing. That root is also the same root for something that's fresh. Like, uh, you know the poplars that Jacob peeled to make the sheep have spotted and speckled and striped babies? However, that works. So some agricultural technique we lost, um, I lost touch with, I guess, or something. Anyway, the, the word for like those poplars that were fresh is lach. They were lach. All right? So um, the tablets, they're called, like, they, they have the connotation of something that's fresh in Hebrew. I mean, that doesn't make any sense in English, you know. There's not a there's not like there's not a connection in English between tablets and something that's fresh. Fresh rock, fresh rock yeah, okay, yeah. They were like newly hewn out. They were they were fresh out of the middle of that thing. Maybe that was the original idea behind that. Yeah. So anyway, that's just to say that um, you know often we dismiss the old covenant as something that was just you know not very good. But when we, when we read it in Hebrew, we realize that the, new, the, 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 the covenant that was given through the hands of Moses, it was a glorious covenant. It came with mass, a massive revelation 
of, of the Holy One. Um, there, was, there was the supernatural involved in that thing. He wrote the tablet supernaturally. There was this element of it that had everything to do with freedom and, and freshness. And how much more? The new covenant through Messiah's blood. How much more when he takes that thing and he write it, writes it in your heart? How much more when the glory that descended on Mount Sinai in, in like an inferno of heat and in like the audible voice of Elohim, how much more when that glory comes inside of your soul and he shines through you and he brings us to life and, and his voice is heard audibly through your mouth? Wow, that's the new covenant. So there's this connection here, eh? You know, some people have a hard time connecting with the Old Testament, and, and I can understand why. There's some pretty tough stuff in there. Uh, sometimes the Old Testament gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, some people just see it as a lot of wrath and, and, and legalism and stuff. And you know what? Sometimes I wrestle with that too. I, I remember one time I was reading through Ezekiel in Hebrew, and I, I was having some, like, I was going through, through some of my own personal emotional stuff, and I just couldn't take it. Like seriously, I was, I was sitting in my employer's truck, he was up on a roof finishing an, an internet install job and I was sitting there reading through Ezekiel and I almost threw my Tanakh out the window. Like I was just so mad, I was like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take chapter after chapter of anger and negative emotion. I'm already, I'm already having a hard enough time with life, you know. So I, I understand that. But you know, when we, when we look at the heart of the Old Testament, like for me, what I see, it's all about his glory. It is all about the anointing. It is all about the heart of the Father, really. I mean, page after page of the Old Testament is just a revelation of the Father's heart, eh? And His glory is all over the place. Um, Let's remember that. Here's something interesting. You could almost say that the people of Israel um, were were, were in the New Covenant because the Old Covenant was the one that they broke before the thing even got finished. You know, like Moshe's is up there receiving it and they're down there like breaking the thing already. So Moshe comes down and he smashes the tablets and uh, what happens? He has to go back up to get a new covenant because they already broke the thing before he even got down from the mountain, eh? So it's almost like the new covenant is right there in the book of Exodus. And interestingly enough, what was that new covenant that Moses went back up the mountain to get all about? It was all about forgiveness because without that forgiveness, the nation would have been exterminated on the spot. Instant vaporization. I don't know what technique it would have involved, but like, it would not have been pretty. Um, his, yeah, it was all about his presence. Moshe said, like, I'm not leaving this place unless you go with us personally. And he said, my presence will go with you. And it was at, at, the, very, at the very heart of that new covenant that Moses got from Mount Sinai was a revelation of Yahweh as gracious, as merciful, as patient, as forgiving. That, that's the Old Testament. That's this covenant, eh? That's the heart of it. And uh, the problem was, there was something about it that didn't change the people. So, you know, 3,000 died right off the bat. Um, people's hearts were being exposed right, left, and center. Maybe that's where the new covenant comes in, where he says, I'm taking my Torah, I'm going to transform you, and I'm going to make it you. I'm going to make you that thing right in, right in your hearts, you know? I'm going to forgive you. Uh, all of those themes. So I just, I love how the covenants complement each other because, like, our God is a God of covenant, hey? He, he doesn't do casual relationships like we do in Western culture. He's, a, he's like, he's Middle Eastern. Like, he does this serious covenant relationship thing. And that's really far from a Western model, eh? So I, I, love, I love rediscovering that.
Here's, here's a verse that uh, kind of sums up that concept. Uh, in Exodus 34, verse 1, it says, Now you always said to Moshe, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. That's the new covenant. The former ones that you broke, I'm going to write them again. I'm going to write them. And where does he write them? But you know, the first tablets, uh, it seems like they were provided by Elohim. Mm-hmm. And Moshe, through his wrath, broke them. Okay, boy, now you bring those, your own, and I'll write on them. You know? Yeah, he had to cut so them out the second there. time. Maybe there is some effort from our side involved too in that relationship, hey? Let's, um, oh, you know what? I brought some cinnamon so we could smell it and because uh, we were talking about flowing myrrh. One of the other elements there was cinnamon. Guess how to say cinnamon in Hebrew? Kinmon. Everybody say kinmon. It's another one of those words that came to us from Hebrew. So I don't know, just for fun, I'll let you like pass this around and sniff it. Here, take a big sniff. Oh, you did? Cool. Yeah, okay, Shabbat, 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 Shabbat. This is like a big Shabbat passage. I don't get it. I mean, Yahweh already said to do Shabbat on Mount Sinai. He already said to do Shabbat when he provided the manna. Why is he talking about it again? Any ideas? It's important. The people what? People were tending to forget. That could very well be. Shabbat was made for us and we forget that. That's true. Yeah, it's a gift from the Father. A wonderful gift. Let's, let's look at this thing about Shabbat. I mean, we, we like sing this passage every week, eh? Because this, this is the week when we... Uh, I mean, this, you know, this is the day that is Shabbat. In... Um, Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17. Another reason may be, he's in the middle of talking about um, building the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and it could be that he was, he was emphasizing Shabbat to say, guys, so listen, even though you're doing holy work for me, I still want you to put the brakes on for Shabbat. Just stop everything, even though you're doing the tabernacle work. Eh? That's, that's, um, that's a traditional Jewish uh, understanding of why this passage is here. Um, also in, in Exodus 34, verse 21, again he says, do Shabbat. Specifically there he emphasizes, like, even when it's harvest time and uh, you have three days left to get the crop off before it snows, do Shabbat. That's the idea. And I mean, like, I, I grew up half on my grandparents' farm, so I remember, like, how, how many of you have been on a farm during harvest time? Oh, it, it's go, 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 right? Like, 20-hour days, falling asleep in the combine, like a lot of crazy things. It's like you don't stop for anything. I remember my great-grandpa, um, he, they, were, they were in the middle of harvest and he cut his hand all the way to the tendons and to the bone. Like it was a serious cut right across his hand. He went in the house and he, he asked for a needle and some thread and he just sewed it up. He just go back out to keep on going with the harvest because like nothing stops for the harvest unless you're doing the Bible. And, and then he always says, you know what, even during harvest time, I want you to stop and, and observe my holy day. That's pretty hardcore, hey? I wonder if it wouldn't take a little faith for farmers to do that. What's that? That could kindle some wrath. If you're a hired hand, for instance, hey? It's like, yeah, I, you know, I do Shabbat, so I'm not going to help you from Friday evening to Saturday evening. But you know, that, 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 
This is, that's another example of how observing Shabbat is an act of faith. It, it says who you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder how that applies in our lives. I mean, we all have demands on our time. We all have things that, you know, are, are, are fighting for our attention, our priority. And like some of us has, have jobs where we have to work on Shabbat. And uh, like a friend of ours in Saskatoon says, she's like a real mama in the Messianic community. You know, we're, we're still living in, in Egypt under Pharaoh. So there's a time when you just have to. You have to work on Shabbat, but, you know, if we have a choice, what does that look like? Here, I'll just point out to you a couple other key, key uh, highlights here from this passage about Shabbat. Uh, he calls them his Shabbat. He says, my Sabbath, Shabbatai, right? And uh, often in uh, Western culture, you know, if you do a Shabbat on Saturday, it's automatically, well, are you Jewish? You must be Jewish, because that's the Jewish Sabbath. But here, he always says, no, th this is my Shabbat. Right? This belongs to him. This is all about him. So it follows that this isn't just something for Jewish people. This is, th if, if you belong to the God of Israel, then this is for you too. Because it's his. Right? So um, also, it says that it is an oat. It is a sign. And uh, signs are something to be taken seriously. Um, it's like something in the physical dimensions of space and time that represents something in the spiritual dimension, right, in terms of our covenant relationship with him. And like we were talking about, doing Shabbat does stand out. It is a sign. It says who you belong to. It says whom your uh, allegiance is to, uh, etc. In uh, verses 13 and 16, he says that Shabbat is for our generations. So as long as the people of Israel are around, Shabbat's going to be around too. That's the way it is. Um, he also says it's a brit olam. And that word there, olam, means what? Forever. It means eternal. It's the same word for it says he is like the everlasting God. He is El Olam. It's the same word for eternal life. Chaye Olam, right? So like as eternal as he is, or eternal life is, that's how eternal he says Shabbat is. Same term. What I don't understand is like often in pop theology it says, well, Shabbat was temporary. It was done away with 2,000 years ago. It was only for a previous dispensation. But, you know, if you just read the Bible and believe the Bible, like it says over and over, Shabbat is eternal. It's, it's a forever thing, right? Which is the opposite of temporary. So we, we want to believe that. And we want to encourage our fellow believers to believe the Bible. And, and to act on the Bible, right? I mean, I, I hope that we can just... I want to be biblical, man. Like that's what it's about for me, right? An eternal covenant, that's correct. Interestingly enough, in the book of Isaiah, it says that the, the planet's going to get rocked and scorched because the Brit Olam, the eternal covenant, was broken and transgressed. Just interesting, interesting passage about the, the future. So, you know, if you're, uh, like, uh, let's say if you're, like, an environmentalist type, if you want to, like, help see the planet saved, doing Shabbat is actually uh, taking a significant step towards that end. <laughs> we'll, we'll make that creative connection. Um, it also says, okay, so it says, like, if you don't do Shabbat, you die. Now, that only applies in a, in a theocratic governmental system. We don't, we're not in that in Western Canada, in the West. So no one here is going to be throwing rocks at people who, who don't do Shabbat, right? We're all, we're all agreed on that? No, none of us are going to, like, assassinate people who don't do Shabbat, okay? So we just want to be really, really clear, really clear on that. But I want, what does that mean on a deeper level? I mean, the concept of Shabbat is, like, I think it's made especially for workaholics, because, you know, like, for, for a workaholic, it's hard to block 24 hours out of every week and just stop. Stop work, leave your work at the office. 
unplug the internet, turn off your cell phone, don't check your Blackberry. I mean, that's an almost impossible for, for, for people if they're, if they're workaholics, right? But he says, do this and do it for me. Uh, it's also very healthy for family life, of course, for, for marriage, etc. So could it be that, okay, like, so but let's think about this. Could it be that when you disregard Yahweh's ways and you just work like a dog seven days a week, by choice, could it be that something in you does die? Maybe you don't physically die, but you're, you, you begin to get like, maybe a little shallow. Maybe something in your heart begins to die. Maybe you begin to like disconnect relationally. Maybe your marriage or your relationships with your children begins to die. Could it be that that's one way that this concept of ignore Shabbat and you will experience some death in your life could, could be? But that's what I get out of it on a practical level. Shabbat's a blessing. Yeah. Uh, it also says... Um, People who don't do Shabbat will be, quote, cut off from their people. That sounds scary. I, uh, there, there's a, a bit of a, a variance of interpretations of that. It could mean, like, quote, excommunication, or it, it could mean something like that. What, what, I, I see this phrase being very expressive of church history, though. You know, in, in, the, in the early Yeshua movement, as, as more Gentiles began to come in, and that Greek mindset began to take over the thing, and the the uh, allegorical hermeneutic became the primary hermeneutic instead of the literal interpretation of scripture. Um, within a century or two, the early church drifted from that original Hebraic context of the faith. Uh, the early church lost touch with the Jewishness of our Savior to an extreme degree, to the point where Jewish people were demonized, were spoken like vile things about, etc., and uh, could it be that it was one of those reasons was simply because believers quit doing Shabbat, which God said was for the people of Israel forever. You know, when you quit doing Shabbat, what you're saying is, I'm not part of the people of Israel. People might even be saying, the God of Israel is my God. I don't know. Maybe, maybe in some people's minds that's there. So the, the concept there is like, if, 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 to the degree that we drift from Shabbat, we're drifting from who we are as a people. We are disconnecting from Israel. We are in danger of falling prey to the wiles of anti-Semitism. And that happened, eh? So, this whole concept, like you can see that cutting off in the early church, and the Father is regrafting his people back in. He is restoring the body of Messiah. You know, people love Israel. They pray for Israel. They, 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 um, they have such hearts for the Jewish people. They, they, they realize they're part of the commonwealth. What, what would the opposite of being cut off be? Grafted in? Grafted in? <laughs> hey, you're right. What are some other words? Included. Maybe reconnected or rejoined. So, you know, all of these words describe what happens as the body of Messiah returns to the Shabbat, to celebrating the Shabbat. We experience that in our lives and in our relationship with uh, the Jewish community. Oh, yeah, and then it concludes, this passage concludes by giving the reason for doing Shabbat. Because... The first Sabbatarian in world history was Elohim himself. He's the one who like worked hard for six days and then he took the seventh day, which is Saturday off, right? So it says, you know, if he did that, if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us. It's the con concept of the imitation of Elohim, right? Isn't that cool? They're doing Shabbat's part of the imitation of Elohim. I, just, I appreciate that. I treasure that. Um, let's 
Look at a couple other things here. This is scary. Genevieve and I were talking about this. So there's like Moshe on the mountain receiving like the, the blueprint for the Mishkan and for the job description of Aaron and for these really cool clothes that he gets to wear. I mean, he's going to look fantastic in these things, right? Everybody's going to be like, wow. And there's Aaron down, down with the people like leading them in idolatry, you know. Give me your gold earrings and stuff and making a calf and like leading the nation... Like, talk about a disconnect here, hey? And, uh, wow. It's meaningful that Aaron was forgiven, that he was restored to that priestly office that was originally intended for him, um, that he went on to be a wonderful uh, first Kohen Haggadol, like a high priest for Israel. Yeah, here's, here's something interesting, though. In uh, 32 verse 4, he says, um, with regards to the molten calf, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So they were saying, they weren't saying like, this is some other God. They were saying, this is, this is, this is the Holy One Himself. Right? And, and, then, um, and then he goes on in verse 5 to say, tomorrow is going to be a feast to the Lord. It's going to be a hogly Yahweh, he says. Ouch. So did, did you notice that? They were like, they were saying they were worshiping Him, but they were doing it in ways that He said not to. They were doing it in ways that he hadn't prescribed. That is a very strong human tendency, right? I mean, really, it's so easy. It's like, I'm going to worship him this way. Well, you know, this day is my Sabbath day. Or I'm going to do this stuff and just make up these set of holidays. And this is how I'm going to worship him. And I mean, I, I don't want to like sound negative or critical. I'm just saying, like, if we want to stay true to the word, could it be that the best way of worshiping him is the way he said to and could it be that it's sometimes dangerous to lapse into other forms of worship or holy days or feasts or whatever that he never said to do in his word? It's, just, it's something to keep our eyes open for, right? It's something to be alert about, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, this was like, this is the highlight. Pat, for me, this is, the, this is like the keystone verse of this whole parasha. In uh, 33 verse 16, he says... How can it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Isn't it by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? So, what was the distinguishing factor of the people of Israel? What was the main thing that identified them? Yes, it was the presence of God, of Elohim. So, could it be that that's still like the way it's supposed to be today? Yeah. So last week we talked about his anointing and his glory and how that sets you apart, how that is to be our distinctive, hopefully as communities, as, as a movement. And, and here we see that like it's his presence, eh? So like if we get together on Shabbat and it's, he's not present in that special way, like forget the whole thing, you know, because it's his presence. What about his presence? That is, our, that is our distinctive, right? Like, I don't want people to think about us as a community and be like, yeah, those are the people who like, do the Sabbath on Saturday. Those are the people who use Hebrew words and call Jesus some other word or whatever. I don't know. You know, like, those are the people who, like, some of them wear strings on their pants or, you know, like, all this stuff. This, these things are good. These are things that, these are, things that are biblical and the, the Messiah is restoring. But my heart's desire is that we'd be, we would be known as a congregation and as a movement where people would be like, man, like I went there and his presence was so thick. Like he was there. You know, like 
Elohim is with those people. Like, seriously, God is with those people. You know, that, that's, that's what I want to be known as. You know, just about like, being all about Him. I, I pray that for us. I, I pray that that will continue to be our top priority. And you know, if there's ever anything else that attempts to intrude and take that first place instead of His presence, like, tackle that thing and take it down, right? Because we're going to guard His presence. We're going to keep that as our top priority. And that other stuff, other stuff is important, right? It's just like we have a priority. You know, I want to share with you a little story about Shabbat too. Sorry, we already talked about Shabbat, but I forgot to share with you the story, and I love stories. So a Jew and a Christian were arguing about the ways of their religion. The Jewish man says, Well, you people have been taking things from us for thousands of years. The Ten Commandments, for instance. And the Christian replies, Well, it's true that we took the Ten Commandments from you, but you can't say that we've actually kept them. And, you know, in broader Christendom, that has been true to some degree. When it comes to Shabbat, it's been, like, really true. I don't know. For some reason, the Shabbat commandment is just the one that, of the Ten Commandments that we just happen to ignore. I was thinking, you know, um, they removed the Ten Commandments from that courthouse in Alabama. And that was a big deal. But you know what? I'm thinking maybe if we as the body of Messiah started actually doing all ten, including Shabbat, maybe that would, that would give us greater force to see the law of God kept in the legal systems. We're not even keeping them. I mean, in our own personal lives, we usually omit the, was it the fourth one about Shabbat? So why would, why would we be upset when they take that one out of the courthouse? It starts with us keeping it in our own lives, and then we can encourage the world around us to do it, right? That's why I said to remember it, because he knew we would be prone to forgetting it, totally. Yeah. I'll just, I'll share with you one, Hebrew ins- one more Hebrew insight here, and then I'll share with you one insight from Paul's letter. Um, in 3428, it uses the term the Aseret Hadvarim. And that is like the ten, it's usually translated as the Ten Commandments, but it literally means the ten words. And the word devar in Hebrew, it has a very broad meaning. Like here it means meaning, in Psalm 45 verse 1, um, the author says, my heart is overflowing with a good word. And it's translated in the NASB as a good theme. So you could almost call like the ten words from Mount Sinai the ten themes. You know, you go down those, and each one of these, is, it applies, it's like a thematic application of significant areas of our lives, in terms of our spiritual lives, our relationships, family, family interactions, etc. So, that's, it kind of gives us a grid for understanding the Ten Commandments. Right. The Ten Items. The Ten Things. Right. The Ten Objects. Right on. Totally. Yeah. Well, there's just one thing that popped out of me in uh, Paul's letter. Uh, we've been talking about, like, the apostolic and the prophetic, and how Paul said that these two functions are actually higher priority than the teacher function. And I don't know, in the Messianic community, I think we just, we just don't connect with that verse somehow, or it is, I don't know, people, maybe it's not in their Bibles or something. But So here, here's, a, here's a little insight, though. Um, it's, a, it's an example of where the term apostle is used in Greek, but it's not translated as apostle in English. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, he says... Um, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the congregations, a glory to Messiah. And uh, that Hebrew term, I mean the Greek term, translated here as messengers is apostolos, uh, Strong's number 652, and it's the word for apostles. So what that tells us very simply is there were more apostles than the 11 apostles and then Paul. Um, these messengers sent from congregations to other congregations that worked with Paul and his team, they were apostolic. They were regarded as, as apostles. So 
maybe that gives us, a, again, a, a broader framework for the, the apostolic rule and uh, what that looks like. I'll share with you two little stories, and then we're done. Uh, the, in, the, in the Parsha, he, um, one of the things Elohim says is, like, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. And, of course, based on that, there's a very complex set of laws in Orthodox Judaism where you are forbidden to eat meat and dairy products at the same time or within three hours of each other, eh? So Big, big Macs are taboo would be a, a simple example of that because it says not to cook a kid in its mother's milk. And who knows, maybe the kid was cooked in its mother's milk, so just don't eat meat and dairy at all, or something like that. I personally feel that, that was, that's an example of, of adding to the word, of making it a burden, and laying that on people, which was a problem. Yeshua says the Pharisees had, had, a, had a negative tendency towards that. So, um, you know, in, in an Orthodox Jewish kitchen, you will have two sides of the kitchen. Um, you'll have two like, sets of cutlery, and uh, two sets of plates and bowls, two sinks, two everythings, basically to make sure that like, the meaty and the milky never touch, right? That's how my Orthodox Jewish friend, I was working for him in his vineyard when Genevieve and I met, and his, like, his, his English was less than, like, very good. So in Hebrew, it is literally meaty and milky. So he's like, so here's the milky side of the kitchen, and don't let anything from the milky side touch the meaty side, okay, Izzy? And uh, Anyway, so here's a little story about that. So uh, my Zeta, Zeta's like a, a grandpa, an opa, a dad, right? My Zeta was a very religious man. He dovened three times a day. He laid to felon every day of his life. Well, one day he heard a noise downstairs, so he went down the stairs to check it out. He saw a burglar putting silverware in a big sack. Very angrily he approached the burglar. The burglar, seeing my Zeta, reached into the sack, pulled out a knife, and was about to stab my Zeta. All of a sudden my Zeta screamed out, I'll give you the English. Not with the dairy knife! <laughs> Here, uh, you guys who know some German, like, nicht mit the milich dick messer. How would you say it? Do you recognize that? It's like Yiddish, I guess. But anyway, so that was how he, he saved himself. I guess that, that scared the burglar off and he didn't get stabbed, so his, his fervor helped. And then uh, I had one more short story for you. Opinion. So um, another thing Paul talked about in this passage is like being upfront and honest about how he handled money and about people being generous and stuff, right? So here's a, a very short story. Uh, a Jewish boy asks his father, Ava, can I borrow $30? And the dad replies, $20? What do you want $10 for? <laughs> That's some pretty smooth bargaining, hey? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I just like, I like sharing funny stories that I read with you guys, so I, I try and find segues for them. Sometimes they're pretty lame, hey? You guys should like have cards and rate me for how lame my segues are from like zero to five or something. I'd be like, one, oh, that was really bad. <laughs> that would be cool. Seriously, if you guys want, you can like make some cards, but only use them for my segues. Don't use them for other parts of my teaching. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.